Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 288 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am delighted to learn that the late, brilliant Betty Boothroyd was an avid collector of frogs. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> and Colombo DVDs, apparently. And Colombo DVDs. I suppose there's a limit on that. She had the box set. But that's dedication, isn't it? One more frog. Do you have anyone in your life that collects stuff, like a, a specific thing? My mum's a big fan of ducks, or certainly was. I have an aunt who's a big fan of ducks. don't think I know anyone who collects things. I used to always buy myself a fridge magnet from wherever I went on holiday. Yeah. These days, uh, you know, the last couple of places I've lived, all of the fridges have been like hidden behind cupboards. So th- those fridge magnets are now redundant, I'm tricky. afraid. Integrated fridges ruining yeah. everyone's oh, fun. Oh, come on. Fridge magnets are like an integral part of British society. No, no, no. What are we going to do? And then where are you going to put your kids' pictures? The whole thing's collapsing. Look, I think, you know, Baroness Boothroyd, mighty, mighty footsteps to follow in, but we could all collect frogs and just do our bit. No, I don't want yeah. to. Sorry. I mean, to be clear to people listening, <laughs> it's not real frogs. No, like ornamental frogs. Peggy went through a stage of collecting frogs and it was frankly horrific. <laughs> they scream, don't they? They do. And that's the first yeah. time I heard it. I was yeah. like, what is that noise? So she never hurt them, but they would scream because they were terrified. And she would just carry them really softly in her, her mouth and then just drop them at my feet. Exactly the same as Betty Boothroyd. <laughs> like down, uh, down to the last detail. I've got a political fun fact for you. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I am putting off a huge amount of paperwork. So instead of doing all of that this week, I read a book about the history of Romania. Obviously. I found this great fact. In the 50s, when Russia and China were having a pissing contest about who was Billy Big Dick in the world of communism, Mao said to Khrushchev, we should have a meeting then. He goes over to Beijing. When he gets there, Mao insists that the meeting takes place in a swimming pool. Like splashy, splashy, wet, wet. Right. Khrushchev can't swim. So during this meeting about the future of international communism, he's got water wings on. <laughs> Amazing. That is, that is lovely stuff. Isn't it beautiful? Makes me wish my dad was here so I could ring him up and tell him. Tell him it. That's brilliant. Anyway, Children of Night by Paul Kenyon. That's what I'm reading. Speaking of children, I'm Jen Offord and yesterday I went to church. Surely, surely you haven't turned <laughs> no, to God. No, no, no. The last refuge of the damned. We got Lyra christened yesterday. We had a shotgun christening. Basically, <laughs> we want to get her into a nice church school. And on her father's side, they are actually genuinely religious. Quite churchy, aren't I'm they? I'm not, obviously, as you know. And the uh, the pastor of their family's church was like, you're all right, I'll sign the form, but you have to get her baptised. So... <laughs> We very quickly got her baptised. And uh, that's what I spent more than two hours of yesterday morning doing. What church, what denomination is she now? Interestingly, because it's not the same as her dad and... I thought for a second you didn't know No, that. I do know. I, was I about thought you were going to be, be like, I have no, no, no idea. It's a Methodist. <laughs> I used to go to the Methodist church. I was part of the girls' brigade, even though I'm a Catholic. But mum was just like, let's try everything. I was very confused about the whole situation. I'm really enjoying the amount of effort you put into investigating what was happening to your daughter <laughs> yesterday. I figure... This is the bit where we hold her underwater for 20 minutes. No, they, they don't hold... There's no holding underwater. We just dripped it on her face and she seemed to quite enjoy no, that I bit. know that. <laughs> what I'm saying is you didn't know no, that. No, I knew about that. You had no idea. 
Oh, she's so going to be well surprised when they come knocking on your door when she turns 13 and claim her. She's ours now. That's a joke, isn't it? I hope. Coming up, I chat to Harriet Saywood Belisario, designer and founder of women's wear label Saywood, about why fashion and sustainability don't have to be at odds. That's quite the name, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to Eurosport presenter Rachel Stringer about the runners and riders in this year's Australian Open. And in rated or dated, I've only myself to blame, as we watch 1994's Four Weddings and a Funeral. But first, predictable chaos, problematic policing and preventative medicine. It's time for the Bush Telegraph Q-Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where weather forecasters are feeling nervous. Will it snow? Won't it snow? Why is it so hard to let us know? I don't know, Mick. Why is it so hard to let us know? I have an answer to this, Jen. Okay. It is because of the capricious nature of what are termed freezing levels, which dictates whether it's going to be snow or rain. And they're, they're very hard to predict. So apparently weather forecasters genuinely do get a bit nervous when it comes to forecasting snow because it's not as easy to predict or to forecast as other weathers. But if you can predict what temperature it's going to be. But within like a certain area, a small area, if something's a bit higher and something's a bit lower, the freezing level will be different, even within a very small area. Gosh. There you go. Wow. Science. It's too much science for me. <laughs> and for me. Let's move on. Let's move on. So uh, let's move on to, uh, sadly, Mick, uh, not a very nice story. Uh but worth talking about to highlight the ways in which police all over the country, not just the Met, have been failing women and girls for quite a long period of time. Well, I even going to bother to try to find my surprised face, Jen? No. So a report published by an independent review into child sexual exploitation in the greater Manchester area has concluded that children were, and I quote, left at the mercy of paedophile grooming gangs by police between 2004 and 2013. It found that in all probability at least 74 children were being sexually exploited and that there had been serious failures to protect the child in 48 of those cases. So uh, That's a really high percentage, isn't it? It's more than half. It's more than half. In some cases, although evidence was given by victims, crimes were not recorded by Greater Manchester Police. Why? Why would they? And those who did take action were sometimes left to face harassment and intimidation by their abusers. In one case, a victim known as Amber, and this is if you've read any of the reports around this particularly harrowing case, she was arrested herself, then bailed to live with a man who had previously been arrested on suspicion of child sexual exploitation. She was also later named in court as a co-conspirator. Without her knowledge as well. She didn't know that was happening, right? So she was a victim and she was named in court, which is also not supposed to happen. Nope. The report, conducted by Malcolm Newsom and commissioned by Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, did highlight the number of convictions made in recent years. However, these only related to a very small proportion of the children, 13 of the 74 Still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And it's also identified at least 96 individuals who could pose a risk to children and many of whom have yet to be prosecuted. In response to the report, Burnham said that it was, and I quote, hard to read and showed the girls had been badly failed. 
Rochdale Council leader Neil Emmett said the council was deeply sorry and added that he wanted to repeat the apology, which I think is an unnecessary. <laughs> I'll repeat what we've already said. Oh, just All in right, case Neil. you didn't catch it the first time, we are sorry. Really yeah. good of you guys. You want to repeat the apology the council had made previously after the cases originally came to light. He said he also wanted to reassure the public that far more rigorous practices are in place today to protect our children. Great. Oh, thanks, Neil. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, good yeah. to know. I did a little bit of reading around this after yeah. you sent it, just because, you know, I wasn't quite miserable enough, so let's do that. And I actually just received an email from the Centre for Women's Justice, like literally 20 minutes before we were about to record. And Harriet Wistrich, who is the director for the CWJ, was part of the team that represented Amber. And she's made a statement and she said, I welcome the overall report and its recognition of the appalling criminalisation of victims of abuse. I welcome the mayor's call for accountability through a review of conduct matters for those responsible in the various agencies that failed the victims. We call on the Crown Prosecution Service to offer a formal apology to Amber and to introduce a protocol for dealing with such cases. Far too often victims of abuse are criminalised for the convenience of criminal justice agencies. It is utterly unacceptable such victims should be further damaged by such agencies whose purpose should be to protect them and hold perpetrators accountable. Bang on as ever. Now, Jen, in absolutely shocking news... It turns out a new government scheme, due to start in April, is already in abject chaos. Seriously, you could not get odds at Ladbrokes. Uh, so yeah, if you had what a shambles on your government bingo card, well, didn't we all? Everyone's a winner? No. Sorry, given that this could pertain to pretty much anything, let me elaborate. I am talking about the government's flagship childcare scheme, a £4 billion extension of state support for childcare costs coming into play over the next few years, that was announced with great hoo-ha by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt last budget. I did that very precisely. Jeremy Hunt. Oh, it's just too easy. It's just too easy. Yeah. The first stage of this sees eligible working parents of two-year-olds in England able to apply for 15 free hours of childcare a week during term time from April, with a wider rollout providing 30 hours to all eligible children from nine months to five years by September 2025. And yet, here we are, not yet there, and already the cars exploded. Parents groups, including the excellent Pregnant Then Screwed, have accused the government of planning the new free offering, quote, on the back of a fag packet, with thousands of parents struggling to sign up for the scheme. Investment has always been crucial, but so is consultation and delivery, said Pregnant Then Screwed's Jolie Brearley. Without a robust strategy for all three, you're just chucking cash into a black hole. I don't think the government fully appreciates how furious some parents are. Sarah Ronan, the director of the Early Education and Care Coalition, said the government had confirmed the hourly rate it gives to local authorities in November, but local authorities had until 31st of March to tell providers, with the scheme starting on the 1st of April. The 1st of April, people. April the 1st. Lols ahoy. Couldn't make the shit up. Couldn't make it up. Many were still in the dark, Ronan said, adding... Until providers know how much of the government funding they are actually going to get, how on earth can they plan their provision and staffing? This is an ill-thought-out policy. We expected teething problems, but the fact that both parents and providers are confused and struggling does not bode well. I mean, 
It was said at the time that they announced this policy that it was bollocks and it wasn't going to work because... I believe they were your actual words at the time that they announced this policy. Yeah, I mean, well, I think they were almost the exact words of pregnant and screwed as well because basically there's like, there's an enormous crisis in the early years, education, provision, like it, there are not enough people to do the jobs. They don't pay them well enough. And they're well not enough. paid enough. They don't, no, like, exactly. People don't want to do it because it's fucking hard work and they don't get paid very well. They're not doing anything to improve that situation. There's a huge gap in the number of people employed in early years provision and, and what is actually required. And the nurseries don't get paid enough by government to fund the free hours that they're supposed to give people. But like there isn't enough money to cover that. So how are they going to cover this? It's It's always been bollocks. And I think they just didn't really expect to have to come good on it. Because as we all know... Which you a general election quite soon? Could it? Oh my come god, soon not soon enough? enough. Yeah, exactly. I just I love Jolie Brearley's You're just chucking cash into a black hole. And to be fair to our government, that appears to be the only thing that they can do consistently well. Taxpayers' cash, black hole. There you go. I can't. Anyway, <laughs> before I actually combust with rage, uh, Mick, I find myself in the unfamiliar position of being able to offer unequivocally good news this week. It can't be about our government then. (laughs) It absolutely (laughs) isn't. It was reported last week that scientists had developed a blood protein test that can identify a whopping 18 early stage cancers. Oh, that's that's exciting. Yes, a lot, isn't it? Blood proteins are already used for these kinds of screenings but have previously lacked sensitivity. So this test, designed by US biotech firm Novelna, is also less invasive than some screenings currently available. Good news. Yeah. Writing for BMJ Oncology, the team behind it said that the test was cost-effective, highly accurate and could identify cancers at the earliest stage of development covering tumours of all the major human organs. Incredible. Is it? Incredible. They should give their cost-effective tips to the government. I don't know. (laughs) Just say it. (laughs) Well, don't get too excited. More tests are needed, say doctors, but... According to Dr. Mangesh Thorat of the Centre for Cancer Prevention at the Wolfson Institute of Preventative Medicine, if the findings are close to those initially reported, the test could be, he says, a game changer. Well, that's what you want to hear when it comes to cancer and positivity, don't you? You want you want game changing. You do. Yeah. More news next week. <laughs> Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where any good news is but a glimmer of gold amid the copious shit. But still, we'll take it. Iran has freed on bail Nilafar Hamidi and Alahe Mohammadi, two female journalists jailed for more than a year for covering the death in custody of Masa Amini, which sparked mass protests against the compulsory hijab and other restrictions, leading to calls for regime change. Now, you'll probably remember that Marcel Amini died in custody after being detained by Iran's morality police. And Nilafar Hamidi, who worked for the reformist newspaper Shah, broke the news of Marcel's death. Alahe Mohammadi, who worked for Ham Mehan, another reformist paper, wrote about Marcel's funeral in her hometown of Sakez and described how hundreds of mourners cried out, Woman, life, freedom. Both journalists were arrested shortly after protests and unrest started to spread across the country, and Hamidi and Mohammadi were given sentences of 13 and 12 years, respectively. Bail has been set at $200,000, that's about 155000 quid, 
and the women have been banned from leaving the country. Um, the reporters are appealing against the jail sentences and will remain out of prison until a court makes a decision, or so say reports in the Iranian media. Too long, don't listen. These female journalists were arrested for simply reporting news about their country's treatment of women. I mean, we'd be fucked, Jen. <laughs> right? I don't even think they did any swearing. Probably not. The role of female journalists in countries that, and this might sound very simplistic, but I think it's true, openly hate women, is huge, vital and dangerous. I, I can't even with how courageous these women are. Mm-hmm. You can hear more about this in this week's Sunday Chops when I'm chatting to Zara Nada, editor-in-chief of Zan Times, about what's happening to women and girls in Afghanistan under the Taliban and why the world's women need to sit up and take notice. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Harriet Saywood Belisario, founder of Saywood, a contemporary London women's wear label with a keen eye on sustainability. Harriet, hello. Hello, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. I'm excited to learn more about fashion and sustainability. So can we start with you telling us how you got into fashion and sustainability? Because they do seem like they're at odds. Yes, definitely do seem to be at odds the way things are being done. But I don't know if they really were always. So I studied fashion at uni. I used to want to be a lawyer. Kind of decided that I thought it might be too long to get into law and went for fashion and then was like, oh, wait, this seems worse. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I studied fashion and kind of actually ended up spending quite a lot of time on my degree looking into sustainability and ethics it was quite a big part of it. I went to London College of Fashion and they were really keen on it. And, you know, this was like, um, I graduated in 2011. So it was a while back now. When I got into the industry, everything was there, really. You could kind of see it, how many flights were being sent all around the world for bringing samples in, those kind of like last minute things that needed to be made, really starting to look at like the fabric compositions and what we were actually using. I felt like it was really, really important and just became increasingly more important the more I worked, the more different places. And then, yeah, I started my brand, Sayward, so kind of luxury wardrobe foundations, like shirts and shirt dresses. But sustainability had to be like the bedrock for it. If you're going to put anything out into the world, clothes, obviously, everyone's been wearing clothes for hundreds of thousands of years. But it wasn't always the case that we were wearing and buying so much of it and it would have been much more limited. But with the internet and marketing and everything kind of just increasing on such a huge scale, I think the amount of clothes that we're consuming has become so, so much, you know, you're talking about like 100 billion garments being produced each year it's a phenomenal amount it's staggering yeah yeah and supposedly we're only wearing like 20 to 30 percent of our wardrobe which i think is quite shocking when you know the amount of pieces that everyone owns really so yeah i think that sustainability and fashion they're definitely at odds at the moment but it really just doesn't have to be that way it can change we can rein in we can go back to kind of you know how we were consuming like before the 80s, 70s, all of that. And you're right, we are constantly told fashion is a huge villain when it comes to climate change and what's happening with the environment. 
textiles and fashion are responsible for up to 10% of global carbon emissions. And like you said, that's staggering 100 billion garments being produced globally each year. It's wild. What makes a brand sustainable? Great question. Because it is a few different things. Ultimately, the point of sustainability, the term of it is to sustain. So effectively, you're talking about longevity. I think that a brand has to be producing with consideration that its pieces are going to be used and worn for a long, long time, which I think is sort of that issue with fast fashion where it's just churning newness out constantly and that idea that people should buy the next new thing, they can discard the old. So really kind of making sure that we're producing to last, which also then means we're talking about quality, better materials, better manufacture in the way that clothes are produced. But the most important thing for me is the social responsibility element which I think often gets lost in that sustainability conversation. It's almost kind of sectioned as ethics. But ultimately, if the people making our clothes cannot sustain their own livelihoods, then really nothing that we're going to do is actually sustainable. So yes, reducing what we're taking from the earth, reducing our carbon emissions, our like global impact on the planet is super important in sustainability but I think it really has to start with the people who are making the clothes as well. I absolutely agree with you. I think we get these moments where the human rights issue is really forefront, but that's usually when there's been a horrific tragedy at a factory somewhere and it it comes to light. But yeah, I, I do feel like the human rights issue quite often gets lost. Definitely. I mean, I think we see that a lot when it comes to fast fashion. A lot of brands at the lower end of the market tend to be producing in countries where they might not even have a minimum wage level set. And these are like can be quite abusive systems. Women don't necessarily have a lot of rights where we're producing a lot of the garments as well. So there's a lot of problems with that. Of course, we can't just go in as well and tell countries how they need to run things. But we do need to sort of be aware of what the impact the brands are having on those kind of industries and equally you can't just say oh well we pay you know 12 percent above the minimum wage when you're actually looking at these countries you're you're talking about in bangladesh for example the wage that you're earning might be sort of around 200 dollars a month which is so minimal so when you're talking like an extra 12 percent it's like nothing. It's not enough, no. It's so far from what the actual living wage is that we're just not getting anywhere close. Really, living wage isn't the ceiling point either. It's a highly skilled job to construct a garment. So actually, it needs to be much further above that. You know, when you're looking in the UK, you're kind of looking at the living wage being sort of around £11 an hour. Actually, as a skilled garment construction you're looking at sort of 25 pounds plus an hour as a manufacturing cost so it's so different and we're so far behind in what we need to be aiming for in these sort of traditional garment manufacturing countries where we're on mass getting our clothes produced and i think that's a huge issue like 
we're looking at just 2% of garment workers actually being paid a living wage. So that's Whoa. like 98% not being paid living wage. That is mental. And that is yeah. such a great point, Harriet, because you see the headlines that the big fashion companies are shooting out, which is like, oh, 12% more than other people. And you're like, oh, we'll just look at the percentage and we don't necessarily investigate what that actually means, which it turns out is fuck all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> think as well i find it it's very easy to be snobbish about fast fashion brands or fast fashion houses like primark gets a lot of flack but at the same time you know we're in an economic crisis in the uk and a lot of people cannot afford to buy investment pieces and to buy what would be classed as sustainable clothing sustainable mm. fashion so there has to be a place for them definitely i mean i think it's a really important point to make and there's sort of several ways to approach it really because part of it is that we have to stop consuming at the rate that we're consuming at the reality is if we're not wearing around 70 to 80 percent of our wardrobes we just don't need to be buying that much stuff constantly and actually i think there's um, an amazing campaign that's really worth mentioning here from tiffany dark and it's the rule of five campaign so it's you buy just five items of clothing across the course of the year, which I think for lots of people that might sound quite scary and quite small as a number. But actually, when you think about it, you know, you're talking like maybe two for spring, two for winter, one sort of maybe more special piece or transseasonal piece. And you get to do that every year. But actually, if you bought those five pieces that you really really loved it would make such a difference to you personally in your wardrobe because I think even just that idea of when you get dressed every day and you go to your wardrobe and there's something that you really love and you're excited to wear it versus how many people say oh my gosh I've got nothing to wear I've been there I've spent an hour just staring at my wardrobe trying different (laughs) things on like oh my gosh why can't I get dressed for this (laughs) It doesn't have to be that way. So I think the idea of consuming less, slimming it down in our wardrobes, but also, I guess, to create a sustainable brand, it doesn't mean that you can only produce as a business, like, I don't know, say, 10 items of each piece, every collection or whatever. We will have to have companies that produce at larger scale Uh in order to achieve lower price points. That's effectively how it's done. So the less that you produce of one item, it costs you more money because it takes more time to cut the pieces. There's not as many pieces going down the production line. So it effectively can get more towards sampling rather than a full production line type of manufacture. Whereas when you're producing a mass, you're cutting like huge segments of fabric at a time. It's much faster going down the line. Your machinists are getting really used to doing the same piece. Uh-huh. You know, someone just does pockets, someone just does collars, kind of functions like that. And it's a much more efficient way of running things. Yeah. Basic economics, really, isn't it? Yeah. E- economy exactly. of scale. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be that everything is going to be as expensive as when we're looking at sort of smaller brands. But it is probably likely going to be the case that, yes, prices will go up a little bit. But you also have factored into these huge businesses, CEOs who are taking, I can't remember what the stat was that came out recently, 
But isn't it, it's like it takes CEO five days to earn what their lowest paid worker earns in a year. Wow. Or something like that, which is just crazy because of sort of the systems that we have. You have people at the top and shareholders taking a lot of money out of companies that could actually be going to the workforce. So really, it's less about making clothes cheaper and more about us actually getting paid the money that we deserve <laughs> and CEOs, shareholders, reducing the amount that they're earning. I love that, Harriet. You were very polite. It's less about making fashion cheaper and more <laughs> about making ourselves less greedy. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, nobody needs eight yachts. Like, it's just who the fuck needs when you get that to, in their when life? you get to four yachts, what, what, what are you proving? Yeah. What are you proving? I mean, just be good with one. <laughs> you are creating pieces that you want people to wear for a very, very long time. And when fashion is so fickle, or certainly that is what we have been sold, that is how we have been trained to see it, that is how capitalism wants us to see it. How do you design an item of clothing to have longevity? You're looking at how people wear things, like the functionality of it, but also just those little details that actually tweak a product to make it feel a little bit special. But ultimately, it's timelessness. There are so many trends that come and go. <laughs> I don't think that timelessness has to be boring. It doesn't mean that everything has to be a neutral. I'm totally not a big neutral person. Oh, I you're a colour. very colourful person, yeah. <laughs> Super colourful. We don't have to dull everything down and mute everything just for the sake of timelessness. But it's just considering a piece and thinking... How can that still be applicable in five years' time, 10 years' time? How's the woman going to wear that? Rather than kind of opting for this has suddenly come on trend, it's suddenly been on a catwalk. Think about is it actually going to get worn? How often? You know, there's so many things that go down the catwalk that actually don't even make it into store because buyers are like, that's not going to sell. And also catwalks have to be super special and exciting for people. That's how they create, you know, they are part of the marketing strategy. They are, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. And obviously there are elements of that that then the high street will take on. But any trend, you know, I used to do trend research for a company that I worked for. And in the summer, I remember reading articles and it would be like, you know, the new floral, florals are in. Florals are in every bloody summer. Like, it's literally because spring comes in April and all the flowers come out. And we're very inspired by flowers. It's just everything goes back round. So if you hold on to things that you personally like as well, because I think ultimately your own personal style and really figuring that out is a huge part of having a sustainable wardrobe of your own, agrees, yeah. timelessness, all of those kinds of things. There is a lot of hoo-ha from big brands about being more sustainable, adding recycled materials into their mix, conscious collections. Um, <laughs> and I do find it kind of annoying when people are snobbish and dismissive about fashion because while things desperately need to change and they need to change like yesterday, it does provide a lot of people with work. It's really important for the economy and we do find joy in expressing ourselves through clothing. That has been something for millennia. 
So clearly people are going to start buying clothes, as we've discussed, but as someone within the fashion industry, is it changing? I think there is definitely a change. I went to Textile Fair recently and, you know, one of the discussions was actually a lot of the big retail brands now are coming forward to talk to mills that they would never have spoken to before because they're actually starting to provide some of these services. You know, we've got the EU making businesses responsible for their own waste. So ultimately we are. (laughs) I'm really hoping it feeds through for us. I mean, I think I think it will because ultimately at some point it's going to actually impact global trade as well. Good. Which I guess is like one of the hopes. But um, so really these companies have to start actually considering some of these things. And whilst for them they might even be priced out of some of the fabrics that would be such game-changing options for them because of ultimately their bottom lines and what their profits and margins need to be actually they are going to have to create the change at some point so it could be a huge case that actually really disrupts the industry which is a positive thing and creating a change at such a mass scale is going to be hugely important but I do think as well whilst as a sustainable brand it is infuriating to see big retailers bringing out their conscious collections of like just the one percent of their huge millions of items that they're producing each year actually the reality is it is bringing the conversation to the masses so whilst i've definitely stood in shops and talked to people and lots of people don't necessarily know what slow fashion is or what the meaning of sustainable fashion is but you are starting to see a lot more people really question things and equally becoming a whole lot more conscious about Things like polyester. I mean, trying to sell a coat that has any kind of polyester blend in it at the moment is like, it's just really not happening for a lot of stores. And you can actually see it. So, whilst yes, there's a lot more work to be done in that kind of end of things because ultimately consumers are part of the product life cycle as well. We are part of that journey. I think. There are changes happening. Yes, it's slow. I mean, this should have been being done sort of 20, 30 years ago. But really, it's happening now. We are where we are and we've got to work with the changes as best we can now. Oh, Harriet, that felt like a message of hope. So we're going to end it there. (laughs) Where can people find out more about Saywood and about what you're up to, please? Yes, uh, you can find us online at saywoodstudio.co.uk, also on Instagram, saywood.studio, on Pinterest, was on TikTok, but not on there right now, because we can't do everything. Only a one-woman business at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, so please do uh, get in touch, have a look, find out more about the brand, about sustainability. There's lots of blogs on the website as well. And I'm always happy to chat and answer people's questions as well. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Mickey here with an advert for better health therapy online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. 
I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, is it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution, in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up, and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash standard. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined by Eurosport presenter Rachel Stringer. Hello, Rachel. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, it's a very exciting time. We're recording this on Friday before the tournament started, so fingers crossed. None of the players we've talked about will have gone out yet. You're here, obviously, to talk about the Australian Open, which is going to be shown in the UK on Eurosport. Very exciting. Your first foray into the Australian Open from sort of motorsport side of things, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, I've done loads of tennis in the past. I've probably covered Wimbledon for seven, eight years now. So every summer I go down to SW19, cover uh, Wimbledon, which is always a highlight of my year. And I've done a lot of kind of the brass court build-ups before as well on Eurosport. So um, when they called kind of late last year and said, would you like to join in with Australian Open coverage? Uh, it was obviously an automatic yes. Then they did say, actually, it's not from Australia, though. It's from the Cube. The mornings are going to be 2 a.m. starts. But whatever. We'll live <laughs> with it, right? It'll be fine. So you're not out in Australia. I used to live blog the Australian Open, and it is it's very brutal. But you'll be around lots of other people. You won't be like sat in the living room drinking like really, really strong coffee at 4 a.m. in the morning. It's all going to be fine. Don't worry, Rachel. Can you tell us a little bit about what the cube is for people who who maybe don't know and and what you'll be doing as part of that yeah totally so the cube is a a studio that eurosport have based over in west london uh, in stockley park so it's really close to heathrow and it is something that you really have to see it yourself to believe it it's in the tiniest little room and the set is absolutely tiny but it projects that you are in Melbourne Park over in Australia uh, we have about six different sets so we have kind of a balcony set with a, a lovely skyscraper kind of scene of Melbourne 
Um, we can look like we're in a studio. We can look like we're in a tennis court. It's kind of like virtual reality meets a studio, not a green screen, because I can wear green, because that was the first question I had. Can I wear green? <laughs> Will I blend in to said backdrop? No, I won't. But I guess the coolest thing probably about it as well, that you can actually teleport people into the studio. So it looks like you're doing an interview straight off the back of the match with Novak Djokovic, for example. He looks like he's in the studio with us. So that's something new for me. And kind of we've been learning the last couple of days, like how that works. This is my first time using the cube. So for me, it's like, where do I look? Do I have to look a certain place? to make it look like I'm actually interacting with the athlete. And they just have, as you would do, a picture of an eye saying, look there, and that'll be the great eye line. So it's super techie once you get in there. Um, But it does look so cool, actually, if you're watching it as a viewer at home. And they've done that for the Olympics before as well, um, for winter and summer. Um, So you may have seen the cube before in some different sports. But yeah, we're using it here in the Australian Open, which has been done as well before. And it just means that we can have a, a kind of crew on the ground so I'll be working with Tim Henman and Mats Verlander here in London. And then we've got a, a team also in Australia, kind of ear to the ground for us that we can um, speak to throughout as well. And you've got some quite big names, haven't you, in Australia who are joining you as part of this. Are you allowed to tell us anything about that or is that secret information? No, we do. It was announced last week that we have, for the first time, got Nick Kyrgios. Uh, as part of our commentary team which I think is absolutely brilliant he's injured at the moment so he is joining us for the entire fortnight so he'll be popping up in the cube obviously virtually he's not coming flying over and uh, doing lots of commentary for us which I think will make the show just so entertaining looking at the Australian Open looking at the tournament itself the person we are all going to be watching for, you know, in the UK is going to be Emma Raducanu. There's been a lot of ups and downs recently. I talked about it on the podcast last week. She'd just withdrawn from a charity match in the warm-up to the tournament. I said at the time, I didn't think we should read too much into that. We, I probably wouldn't be putting any bets on her to win this tournament. It's just good to see her back in action. Right? Have you got any thoughts on how things are going for Emma Raducanu? I think we probably shouldn't expect too much from her. Okay, she's come out, hasn't she, in the press and says she thinks that the break has meant she's playing the best tennis that she's played in a while, which is obviously super positive and we're all kind of jumping on that and probably expecting so much from her. But, you know, she's here. She's got a wild card, obviously, in this tournament. She played over in Auckland. Obviously, you know, hasn't had the best run over there. She didn't play now in, I think it was two charity matches, which she should have played this week. I'm looking at that as if, well, she's just trying to manage her body. Obviously, the Grand Slam is what she's kind of prioritising now, and rightly so, because she can use her protected ranking, can't she, from before injury for a few more tournaments. So she needs to get these ranking points as well. So it doesn't matter about an exhibition match. You're not going to get any ranking points. You know, if you play well there, kind of irrelevant. So she needs to go out here, you know, play well, get a a match or two under her belt and kind of climb back up the rankings just for the rest of the season and her career as well it doesn't matter if she goes and plays going to be Naomi Osaka wasn't it she pulled out Mm. as well in that exhibition so kind of not try and look into it she's got Shelby Rogers hasn't she in the first round who's also been injured I don't believe she's played since Wimbledon either gone and had an a operation I think she had an abdominal tear it was then so they're kind of 
two women almost making their comeback. So that would be a favourable draw, doesn't it, for Emma to have in her first round. So she just needs to go out there. Obviously, there's always uncertainties around her. Obviously, she's got her old coach back with her as well, who she grew up with, who was helping her prior to going out to Australia. So it's nice that she's got, I guess, you know, a safe environment around her. And they'll know what's best for her. But she's been playing out there. And by all accounts, obviously, I'm not there. People have been saying she's been looking solid in warm-up and in practice. So let's just take it a match at a time. Let's just get her back to, to winning and, you know, back to getting confident for the rest of the year. How do the protected rankings work? Because I was looking at this earlier in the week and she's ranked 200 and something. 99th over here. Yeah, and Naomi Osaka's like 800 and something. So I was thinking, because Naomi Osaka was, I think, 42 or 43 prior to taking time out. Obviously, she was pregnant. She had her first child so I was looking at that thinking, well, that doesn't look doesn't look too well protected to me. I don't understand how that works. Don't quote me on this, but Emma's before she was injured was something like 107 or something. And then she goes out and has an injury and she gets protected. I think it's something like eight tournaments. Again, there's a certain amount of number that she can go back in on that ranking. Obviously, that's still enough to get kind of a wild card or you know get into a different slam and obviously the reason she gets wild cards is because she's such a prominent player on on the yeah, tour yeah she's a grand slam winner so she obviously you know she like well let's pick and choose her matches this year which she can come back and do so in terms of the other women in the draw Iga Spiontek was heads and shoulders above everyone else in the rankings like in the points for ages and ages and ages, but it looks like Arena Sabalenka is kind of closing that gap. I mean, there is still, there are still a lot of points between them, but she's kind of up there now. So who do you think are the big contenders in this tournament? I mean, that was a talking point, wasn't it? It was the first time in absolute years that we had two players both getting over 9,000 points, wasn't it, in the ranking? That was, like you said, Iga Sviantek and Arena Sabalenka. Arena Sabalenka comes in as defending champion doesn't she so is the first time she's ever coming in defending a grand slam for her if you followed women's game over the last couple of years in yesteryear i guess back in 2022 it would always have been the mental side of the game which got to aria sabalenka she finally didn't she kind of worked it out uh, last year at the ao but then couldn't quite put that back into place again at the other three slams you know, she possibly could have been a Grand Slam champion four times last year. Kind of the moment got to her again there. Is it going to be the case of there's a lot of pressure on her shoulders? You know, if you've watched Netflix's Breakpoint, you will see, you know, she wanted to be a Grand Slam champion more than anything in the world. And she was putting all that pressure on and all her team were very much kind of saying, you know, stop talking about it. We need to just kind of keep her very focused on what she's doing. She's achieved that now. So are we going to see her kind of coming in going, look at me, I I belong here, which I think a lot of players do struggle with. Or are we going to see her fall? Obviously, as second seeded player in this, she gets quite a nice run. She's obviously in the opposite side of the draw to the likes of Iga Sviantek. You have to probably look at, obviously, those two. Then Elena Rabakina, uh, she's had pretty good outings so far in the warm-up 
to this. She obviously won, didn't she, uh, in the first week of the year. She was over in uh, Brisbane. So she already lifted the title. Uh, then it was interesting that she carried on and went to play and she hasn't made it through to the final of, of this week in the next set of matches. So you've got to look at her. Obviously, she's a, a Grand Slam champion as well. That was Wimbledon in 2022. So let's see what she can do this time out. Um, I guess you've got to have a little look everyone I'm going to say this because I pretty want to on Jabir but we know she's probably more of a, a grass court player obviously she loves Wimbledon she's been a finalist there twice but it came to light didn't it I think it was only a couple of weeks ago that if she had won Wimbledon last year 2023 she would have then gone on to her baby she was hoping to come become a grand plan champion so she could go and become a mother she's now put a hold on becoming a mother to go and try and win a Grand Slam title. So, you know, that's pressure yeah. on in itself that she's kind of, I can't retire or have a little bit of a hiatus until I achieve another, you know, lifetime goal. So there's a lot of narratives, as there always are, going around. Caroline Wozniacki's come back to the place that she announced her retirement in 2020. Obviously, she won in Australia in 2018. And Naomi is back as well. Uh, two women who have both had their children, Wozniacki and Osaka, and coming back and making their comebacks to Australia. So can they, as former AO champion, you know, go deep? They know what it takes. So there's so many cool narratives kind of going around the place before we start. And then you've got the likes of Milena Osipenko, who you just never know. She can take out anybody on her day. She's fiery. She's been having a great couple of warm-up matches and tournaments. So uh, you can't quite rule her out either what about coco goff oh good one obviously she's the most recent grand mm-hmm. slam champion obviously still super young we haven't really spoken about her that much i think the us open and the australian open there's so much in between them that you've had the pre-season you know everyone's kind of looked back at last year and gone okay well how do we defeat x y and z this is what's so intriguing about the Australian Open is the fact that it is the first slam of the year. Everything's a little bit of an unknown. You know, she hasn't played as much as some of the others in the warm-up matches. So in terms of that, she didn't do the United Cup for America. So you're like, oh, you know, you're not really sure exactly how she's playing. But how amazing would it be if she could back up the US Open win and claim the Aussie Open title as well? The thing that people always talk about in the women's side of the draw is that it's pretty unpredictable. The seeds go out all over the place. You never really know what's going to happen. In the absence of, you know, a really, really dominant force like Serena Williams, who obviously was just, you know, winning everything for years and years and years, people would say, oh, it's kind of like, you know, it's sort of boring because there aren't any like superstars to get behind. I disagree with that. I'd said on this podcast many times, I think the way that women play tennis is probably more entertaining to watch in a lot of ways. Do you think that... The women's game has suffered in the absence of the big stars. Do you think there are new people coming through who have that kind of global appeal that brings in people who maybe aren't super, super into tennis? Don't you think they are more real than, you know, the big three that we used to have and they're so unreachable? What you have in the women's game is women that openly discuss the problems they're facing. And I'm talking about like Naomi Osaka coming out and saying, no, actually my mental health was taking a hit, so I'm going to step back. 
from the game. People can relate to her on a different level and maybe they don't have to be a fan of tennis or sport, but actually they then become a fan of Naomi Osaka and then in turn become fans of tennis because they're also have been suffering and other people who suffer so actually someone like Amy Saka very much transcends more than just tennis she becomes a real person to you and now she's gone and had a child only six months ago and now she's making a comeback again women in the workplace can relate to that you know taking time off to have a child and then you know trying to come back at the same place you left off and continue mm. with a career that you love there's a lot of stories like that youngsters coco goth having success emma Anacanu having absolute you know ridiculous success at such a young age and then not being able to back it up you know we've all been there and done that and had success in our careers or in our hobbies or you know in relationships and then actually you know we've we've failed at something or it's not gone so well and yet then we're having a comeback so I think actually all these women make the sport more approachable because they can go and watch them and not necessarily loving the tennis or the sport aspect but getting behind people who have a personal background story and that's what I think I love about the women's game you know Iga Sviantek as well she's come out and said you know it was really difficult for her last year and at the Australian Open because she was going in as world number one everyone was going she's the person to beat and actually she, you know, stumbled, didn't become Australian Open champion and then had a little bit of time to reflect to go, I have to win every match. I'm not going to die. It's okay. I can still be at a top level and, and go out there and win some of the times and, and not the others. And yet she still finished 2023 as, as well, number one. So these women are so open, I think, in their game, which is something that I find really lovely to see. And I think they then become great role models for so many people. And then when they do become Grand Slam champions, then that's doing a job for tennis as well as for them as individuals. If you had to take a punt now, and Rachel, I look, I always get this wrong. I always get it wrong. As soon as I say someone, then it, 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 it never happens. But if you had to take a punt now, who would your money be on? Jessica Bagula, you'd love her to get past the quarterfinal, but I heard that she has a illness or something now. So I'm like, oh no, like I don't, I don't think she's pulled out. But still, looking at the draw and on her form coming into it, I know she lost to Rebecca um, last week. I would really love for Arena Sabalenka to defend her title. I think her or Rebecca, can I give him two? Yeah, sure. Why not? That's number two and number three. Let's go with them. Okay. Top seed. Okay. Yeah, you heard it here first from Rachel Stringer, Eurosport presenter. Rachel, tournament started on Sunday. You can watch every moment live across Eurosport and Discovery+. Plus. I gather, Rachel, that uh, over on Eurosport, tennis never sleeps. Is that is that right? Tennis never sleeps on Eurosport. You can literally be across all of it. And I don't think... Myself, Tim or Matt will be sleeping as well for the rest of the tournament because uh, we're getting in at like 2am. The kind of lack of sleep is real. The bags are real at this stage. Where can we follow you to keep up to date with what you're doing on the socials? Well, obviously on my own Instagram, you can follow me. I'm posting throughout there and that is Rachel underscore Stringer or at Rach Stringer on Twitter. But of course, you've got TNT will be posting about it, Discovery and Eurosport will be posting about it throughout the course of the rest of the tournament. So 
I'm sure actually this person to follow will be Nick Kyrgios. I'm sure he's going to have some absolute gems he'll be coming out with on our commentary. So go and follow him as well. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, why have I got just by Radiohead stuck in my head? <laughs> you do it to yourself, you do, and that's what really hurts. Well, you also did it to us. What did you do to us this week? You said last week that the pair of you liked this, but anyway. I, don't, I didn't claim like. This week we watched Four Weddings and a Funeral, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January 1994. Directed by Mike Newell. It was written by... What's the opposite of friend of the show? Mm. (laughs) Enemy of the people. Uh, Him, (laughs) Richard Curtis, after he realised he'd been to 60-odd weddings in the previous decade. Which, and I say this as someone who comes from a big family, is an insane amount of weddings. That is a lot of weddings. But does go some way to answering one of the biggest questions I have about four weddings and a funeral, which is who goes to the weddings of people they don't really know? <laughs> mm. Made on a budget of only £2.7 million, most of its cast were paid just £17,500, although the real payday came in huge career bumps for Kristen Scott Thomas, James Fleet and John Hanna. It made a bona fide star out of Hugh Grant, who was paid £30,000, by the way, and had been considering giving up on acting. In making a whopping $245.7 million at the box office... Fucking hell! It was very good for working title, which was able to clear its debts, and Polygram, which did likewise, which in turn was very good for the British film industry. Four Weddings and a Funeral was also very good for Wet Wet Wet, who spent Ooh. more than three years, sorry, months at number one with a cover of the Trogs Love is All Around. See also WH Auden's Stop All the Clocks, which was soon named the nation's favourite poem. And it was crazy good for Grant's girlfriend, Elizabeth Hurley, whose safety pin dress worn to the premiere made her one of the most talked about women in the world. Whether she'd agree with hindsight that this was a good thing, I don't know. Tell me, when was the first time you saw it? How many times have you seen it? When was the last time you saw it? Let's start with you, Jen, because I know you're the, of the three of us, the person who likes this film the most. My answer to all of your questions is, I don't know. I don't know when I first saw it. It must have been around the time it came out, but obviously I was too young to have gone to see it at the cinema. I don't know when I last saw it, but I have seen it a lot. Mick? I didn't see it at the cinema Absolutely not. But pretty much as soon as it was probably like on DVD or VHS or whatever it was in those days, I've seen it a few times, not loads, probably three or four. And I haven't watched it for many, many years. Let's say decades. I was at university, so I didn't often go to the cinema. And it's a rom-com, which isn't really my bag. (laughs) I also can't remember the first time I saw it. And maybe I have only seen it once before this, maybe twice. It's not really my thing. But nonetheless, I think you have to give it credit for the fact, my thing or not, it did change British films in the mid-90s. Absolutely. It was so big. It was so yeah. big. I, I don't know anyone who wouldn't have seen it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Even if it's not their thing, they'll have probably yeah. seen it. Let's do some plot. Charles, a big posho, spends his weekends <laughs> going to weddings with his gang of posho friends and Marmalade Atkins. <laughs> R.I.P. Charlotte Coleman, who died way, way too early. Yeah, yeah, she did. At one of them, he meets an American, Carrie, played by Andy McDowell, and inexplicably decides that she's the woman for him. They shag. 
They go to another wedding. They shag again. She marries somebody else. They don't shag. One of the gang dies of a heart attack and no one even tries to revive him. They go to a funeral. They don't shag. (laughs) Charles decides to marry his ex-girlfriend, Hen, played by Anna Chancellor, then changes his mind on the day and leaves her at the altar. But that's okay because she is mad and he loves Carrie. They kiss in the rain. Is it still raining? Vomits. <laughs> the end. Footnote. Steve Coogan makes three fights, two weddings and a funeral. I watched that close to a hundred times. <laughs> Have you ever seen that, guys? No, is it Paul Calf though? Paul and yeah, Pauline yeah. Calf, yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing. I must have seen it. You can see it on Daily Motion. Okay, so my first question is, given we're not fans of Richard Curtis, given mm. it had been a very long gap between me seeing it the last time, I knew it was going to be impossible not to carry a fuckload of Richard Curtis baggage into this. And suddenly um. I started seeing misogyny and fat jokes and all of the things that are in his later films I saw here. Gareth, where he talks about why people get married and he says, oh, it's because they get bored, they've got nothing to say and he decides that he's going to propose to her. Just the way he discusses that, women in such a passive sense in that sentence, I just think all of the flaws are in this later film are in this. I just maybe didn't notice them the first time I watched it. I full-heartedly and sad-heartedly agree. When you said you were picking this, I thought, oh, this is before he went the way that we have Mm. discussed many times previously. Huge fan of Blackadder. Obviously, that's Richard Curtis and Ben Elton. We'll always have Blackadder. And so I wasn't like, oh, no, I don't want to watch this. I was like, oh, I'm interested to watch this. I'll probably have a nice time. And I was really struck by everything that you've just said. Really struck by it. Really struck by the lack of diversity. Really struck by even when he has two gay characters in there. They are treated like so homophobically it's so strange the way he treats them i think the script i don't think the script respects their love very much at all oh i don't agree with that when hugh grant's character when charles says oh we had two people in our midst who were married all along and you're like yeah why the fuck didn't you know that that's when i think the script yeah yeah. isn't very fair to its gay characters i do agree there are things where you see where it's harder to be gay the priest calls him his closest friend yeah that's reflective but there are i agree with you and yes there is a a a deaf character in it which at the time there probably wasn't that many it probably deserves some praise for that it is absolutely striking how white it is but what i thought was interesting which i'd not really thought about before because obviously gay people people with disabilities or whatever obviously would not be weird to see them in a film now i think he probably thought that he was being super progressive. I think it is hugely jarring how fewer faces there are that are not white in there. I think I saw one Asian person, you know, sat down at one of the weddings. So I think that is really jarring. But I think he probably thought that he was being quite progressive at the time. And I think possibly he was in that respect. Can we talk about Carrie? Because she's portrayed as this really bold, I've shagged loads of blokes and yeah. I'm not embarrassed by it, pre-sex in the city sort of sex and the city woman. Or as Christian Scott Thomas's character describes her immediately, 
A slut. A slut. Yeah. yeah. But then every scene she has with Hugh Grant is so cringe. That bit where she invites him into her bedroom and they start doing that whole, is this too far? Is this too far? Yeah, yeah, And it's yeah. so fucking cringe. Do you know what? A woman like that would just close the door and just get to it. Everything is this pantomime. Everyone behaves in this in a way that people don't behave and they talk in a way that people don't talk. And I just found their interactions just so unbelievably cringe. Harry was an interesting one for me this time because when I've watched it before, the thing that's jarred with me is I didn't like Andy McDowell in it. I was like, oh, it's a shame that Andy McDowell's in it. And actually, apart from that line at the end, and, you know, fair play to Andy McDowell, she didn't fucking write it, but that line is horrific, right? Mm. She had to say it. It's in the script. I liked Carrie a lot more this time than I've ever liked her before. And I think that's not necessarily anything to do with it. It's to do with me and the way that the rest of the women are so (laughs) two-dimensional. At least she's got a little bit of something. At least she's got a little bit of agency. And she didn't annoy me in the way that she used to really annoy me. I think Andy McDowell's quite good in it. I don't love the character of Carrie. And I don't think I ever have. There's not a lot to her, really, is there? She just sort of comes along, talks about how many people she's shagged, shagged someone behind her fiancé's back. She doesn't really have a personality other than being American. And we are told someone who's like shagged a lot of people that's it that's her personality isn't it she's american her personality is love interest isn't it Jen? yeah there aren't that many people in it that do a lot though are there apart from now, like his, his character is quite well developed but no one else's character is particularly well developed no i think john hannah is incredible in this actually i think there's some really good performances and the funeral is definitely the best bit because he is just amazing my favourite John Hannah will always be John Hannah in Carnival, but that's a very yeah. different kettle of John Hannah. But I just think he's great in it. I think Hugh Grant's really good in it. Simon Callow gets an opportunity to fucking Simon Callow it to the max. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a fan of that, but there he is. But yeah, I think you're right, Jen. Everyone else is gifted so little to do much with. The only other person I really like in it is your guy who's in the Vicar of Dibley as well, who is Christian Scott Lee. Thomas. Yeah. Gerald's. And I think... He's really lovely, but again, ends up being folded into a cliche and marrying his cousin. So, you know, there's not much I can relate to. The treatment of Anna Chancellor's character in this is absolutely just appalling. Yeah, it's awful. I find it mortifying to watch. The whole way through it, they all talk about her like she's mad. Why haven't none of his friends talked him out of doing this? It's obvious he doesn't want to marry her. It's Uh obvious he's going to back out. It's obvious she's got mental health problems. It's obvious that he's going to ruin her fucking life. That is just completely and utterly appalling. Also begs the question for me, and maybe I'm just, you know, a slightly more practical person. He's made a decision he's going to marry someone. He's got to marry someone. He's desperate. Why does he pick her? Why doesn't he pick Fiona at Uh that point? If you're just going to be married to anyone, it might as well be someone you get on really well with. You don't want to ruin your friend's life, though, honey. You want to ruin the mental the mental bird's life instead. Yeah. I'm going to take issue slightly with what... I don't think she does have mental health problems. I think he's a prick and he's been horrible to her and she's had a mental reaction to someone treating her very badly. So one of the things that I found most problematic about this film, watching it again as an adult, who obviously has had a shall we say, checkered past romantically. He's actually a fuckboy. And he's presented as like, he's the hero of the piece, but he's a 
dickhead. He's not very nice to any of the women that he's dated. He's got this awful dinner that he has at this wedding where he's surrounded by all his exes who we're kind of led to believe he's aggrieved in some way. And so it's horrible for him because he's got to confront this situation of exes who are all a bit like, well, you know you're a bit of a commitment phobe or like you weren't that nice to me etc etc and yet he's still the hero of the hour like he's he is the central hero of the piece but actually he's a fuck boy but he's also a dickhead he gives the best man speech that's all about himself yes and he also just ruins someone's marriage by accidentally saying something yeah. to them that you wouldn't even say You'd never say even if they had just split up no Guys, come on now problematic man deserves dream wife it's hardly a new scenario is it no uh, but yeah i totally agree with both of you by the way it made me realize again i don't not realize because we already knew this but once again in the same as with love actually i feel like richard curtis doesn't know what love is he doesn't know yeah. the difference between lust and love he doesn't understand women i'm surprised he's ever met any even though i know he's married and has a kid but i'm just like that isn't what love is none of what's in four weddings and a funeral apart from gareth and simon is love as far as i can see what I think is really good about it, so I agree that it is problematic in a variety of ways, but I enjoy it and I think it is funny and I think some of the lines in it are brilliant. Like the old man, it should be perfectly obvious I'm neither. Like that still makes me lull. Like I do think some of it is really, really funny. It reminded me of, you know, the time in everyone's life where you are going to weddings like every fucking weekend. And I thought a lot of the stuff about the weddings was really well observed, actually. A lot of the stuff that goes on, I thought was really well observed. Bonus points if you spotted Nicola Walker, who I've never spotted yeah, in I this did. before. Yeah, I did. She made me laugh. Her singing badly was quite a highlight for me. I'd never noticed her in this before, so I think it yeah. is a while since I last watched it. A couple of bits made me laugh. When Rowan Atkinson's talking to Kristen Scott Thomas, <laughs> and she says something, which again, I don't think anyone would say. No one would, would say. say. Yeah, yeah. But he does. Like that funny little laugh. And then at the end, he just goes, ooh, like that. And it is amazing. That's not in the script, is it? No, but thank you for putting it in there, Rowan, and giving us a little chuckle. I agree with you, Jen, in that I think a lot of the stuff about weddings is really acutely observed. But I would say it's a very particular kind of wedding. Everyone in this film has money. And that is why someone is getting married three months after they first got together at another wedding yeah like nah, nah, nah you're not having a big wedding in three months I unless you are just throwing money but i agreed that it was like it, that was one of the things that i noticed that i was like you're all getting married very quickly aren't you <laughs> like this doesn't because he marries hen 10 months after he's 10 like, months yeah how is it that Scarlett ends up at Carrie's wedding? Oh, they're all just going them? because for they the keep... plot for the plot hannah i think it's because they meet each other at they keep meeting each other at weddings basically and then she makes the acquaintance of Gareth. You'd never invite him, would you? Like, you'd have to be, like, a particular kind of sociopath to invite the person that you fucked behind your fiancé's back who to the wedding. really has, like, no business being there whatsoever. He's not really your friend. You've met him, like, two or three times yeah. before. And on two of those occasions, you just copped off of each other. You would have to be nuts, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. None of them should be at Carrie's wedding at all. We're never told why she's at the first wedding. We don't know how they know it. There's no kind of introduction. That we don't understand. No, it's so terrifyingly posh, isn't yeah. it? It's so frighteningly upper class yeah. that I do feel quite removed from it. And while I do think Hugh Grant is great in it, I think he, he takes what he's given and he does really well with it. And he's charming and he's handsome and he's... Everything you want from that role. He's a footballer who gets away with it. Absolutely, Jen. You're spot on. 
and he's posh as hell. And I'm glad he gave us Hugh Grant because we always have Paddington, right? But also, yeah. just you, just none of those people, if I met them in real life, I wouldn't want to spend five minutes with them. No, not one. Okay, rated or dated? Dated. Dated. It is dated in a variety of ways, but I really enjoy watching this film, so I'm going to stick with rated. Wowzers. If only some of them had dated before they got married, Hannah. True, <laughs> true that. Jen, what are we watching next week? Well, Hannah and Mickey, and indeed me, we're going to hate next week's choice, but I think it will be interesting to discuss. Takes off glasses and becomes beautiful. We will be discussing She's All That from 1999. Oh. I thought we were going to watch Superman again. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.